this morning as we continue in the book of John. Last week we talked about the new birth, the, um, what we call the doctrine of regeneration, that the Holy Spirit of God does a great work in an individual's life to give them life, give them the ability ultimately to see the beauty of Christ and in seeing the beauty of Christ, uh, enjoying the beauty of Christ and saying he is absolutely everything I long for and desire. He is the greatest privilege that life has to afford. He is uh, the only thing worthy of eternal affection. This week we are dealing with one of the single most foundational truths of the Christian life. We are dealing with the atonement. Now, um, before we dive into that, let me go ahead and make a couple of statements in regard to how we are going to deal with the atonement. First and foremost, let me go ahead and tell you what we, what we talk about when we say the atonement. We are making reference to the price that Jesus paid to ransom ruined sinners back to himself to restore them to a place that they might enter into the kingdom of God in a way that they are not only coming in as servants, but they are coming in as sons and daughters. And so when we begin to talk about the atonement, I'm going to tell you first and foremost, this is a foundational issue. This is not an issue that can be negotiated upon. Um, in uh, our church, we like to say there are three major categories in our doctrine and in our theology, what we believe about the Bible. The first is what we call dogma. These are non-negotiable issues. Dogma is things that if we were to compromise on them, we compromise the gospel. This is Dogma. Doctrine are things that we perhaps have differences in, but they, they're really not a, fe a fellowship issue. And discussion are things that we can have different conversations about, disagree on, and still come to church on a Sunday morning and celebrate Christ together. This morning we are not dealing with things that are negotiable. We are dealing with things that are foundational to the Christian faith. And should you take an axe to the atonement, what you actually would then have is a gospel-less gospel. You can call it good news if you'd like to, but unless Christ came and paid our penalty, then friends, we are still dead in our sin. I would even go so far as to say that everything we discussed last week about the new birth really does nothing for the saint unless there is actually an atonement or an object of faith that we can look to and say, he is our hope and stay. He is the reason we have redemption. And so everything in the Christian life finds its culmination at the cross. And this morning, as we look and continue the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, Jesus brings Nicodemus up to the moment of his crucifixion. Though it has not occurred yet, and though Nicodemus perhaps does not grasp it in full, the Lord gives him insight into it. And so this morning, if you would, stand for the reading of God's word. We will be in John chapter 3, starting in verse 9, working our way through verse 15. I would remind you what we have here this morning before us is the infallible word of God that it is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life, and so we gladly bow before its authority. And the scripture reads, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Speaking of the new birth. In verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you did not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ever, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning, we come looking at heavenly things, lofty things. Lord, I ask you this morning, would you give us eyes to see the beauties of the gospel that we find here? Lord, give us ears to hear their, uh, the, 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 
the good news, Lord, that they would actually be good news this morning that would fall on our ears and bring us to repentance and faith that we might fall more deeply in love with Christ. And so, Father, we ask you to work in this moment. Lord, I confess to you weakness and frailty, and I trust the authority of your word and your spirit. Lord, and as I'm reminded each and every time I stand in this place, Lord, that I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness that Christ's power may rest upon me. So, Father, we ask you to move in our midst. It is the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, the sermon in a sentence is this. The Son of Man has been lifted up so that we may look to him and have eternal life. Let me go through that once again. This is the, everything that we're talking about this morning. Really, the purpose of it is to uplift this one thing that Jesus communicates in verses 14 and 15. The Son of Man has been lifted up so that we may look to him and have eternal life. Now, um, I'm going to go ahead and say within John chapter 3, it almost seems like we have a mini order of salvation. Jesus begins to communicate to Nicodemus what actual salvation looks like. First and foremost, he says, there is a new birth. There's something that takes place in your life that allows you to look to Christ and say, he is everything that I desire. And the work of Christ, him laying down his life in our stead is what actually saves. And so this morning, what we're looking at is that which actually saves. But before we get there, I want to walk us through the conversation, just step by step, continuing the conversation with Nicodemus, because as we approach this passage, it's easy for us to remove the fact that this is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Does it apply to us today? Yes. But nonetheless, let's not remove Nicodemus from the conversation. His, his mindset, who he is, reveals a great deal about what Jesus is communicating to him. And so last week when we, when we for instance, made reference to the new birth and, and Nicodemus marvels at this, when we made reference to the fact, when Jesus made reference to the fact that flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit, this, this impacted Nicodemus in an incredible way. He realized there's nothing that he can do to contribute to his salvation. Flesh will always give birth to flesh. And so then you can almost have this, this mindset in verse 9. He says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How can these things, they're, they're incredibly wonderful. Yes, they're lofty, but how can they actually be true? And I want you to see Jesus' response to this. So Jesus looks at him and says, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. And what he's actually saying, and you do not know these things. You don't have a knowledge of the new birth. You don't have a knowledge of these things that are, really have been communicated of old. Regeneration is not a new doctrine. We see it in the Old Testament. And so when we come this morning to consider everything that's following here, we have to understand Nicodemus's mindset. Nicodemus is coming as a teacher of the law, as one who understands, has read, and studied the Old Testament, and still these things, for some reason, aren't clicking in his mind. And the reason that is, is because this Holy Spirit of God had not illuminated to them. And also, I would argue, because he had been reading the Old Testament with a faulty paradigm, as if, that he, was, if he was actually able to upkeep each and every one of the laws, that he would be permitted into the kingdom. But his flesh has actually given birth to flesh. This is important for us to understand. Nicodemus, even if he had kept the law to the letter, he would have still, even in, as he was growing in his knowledge and his means of, of working out the law, he would still have sinned at bare minimum once. And his flesh gives birth to flesh. And friends, the flesh is always pregnant with death. The only, the only way that we can possibly surpass or move past the, what flesh actually produces in our life, which is death, is for someone, whether that be us or another, take on that death. The penalty must be paid. God is just. 
And so when we come to this and Jesus looks at him, he says, Are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He then transitions in verse 11 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Now I want to point out something to you here. The conversation up until this point has been Jesus and Nicodemus. There's these, it's just it's single, singular. I say to you, I'm telling you, Nicodemus responds. It's a conversation between Nicodemus and another. And what I want to point out to you is this interesting transition you have in verse 11 where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Who's the we is the question we have to ask. Have the apostles walked in and began to converse with him? Well, we don't believe that's the case at all. Because the apostles would have certainly interjected, especially Peter. But instead, what we're seeing here, some would argue that this is speaking of John the Baptist and his testimony as well. Perhaps that's the case. I would argue that it is not just John the Baptist, but it is all that he, it's all of his office, the prophets of old. The prophets have made reference time and time and time again to one who would come that would actually rescue and redeem Israel in a true and better way. And what we look at this morning is Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus and saying, listen, my friend, the, the entirety of the Old Testament that you've studied, that you've known, that you've read, that, that you've read, that you've interpreted, that you yourself are teaching, they bear witness to these things and you don't understand them. Notice what it says in verse 11. It continues and says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I want you to understand the state of Nicodemus and honestly the state of every natural man. Should someone approach you apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit and bring good news to you, friends, you are going to reject it. And that's what's so interesting about this passage. It is not as though Nicodemus has not been met with it in the past. Nicodemus has seen these things. You're telling, I mean, Nicodemus has read Isaiah 53. He's read Psalm 22. He's looked at Genesis chapter 3 where the fall occurred and a curse happened, but God clothed Adam and Eve with the, 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 the skins of animals. There's constant reference throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that there is one who is coming who is better, and yet the one who is coming is sitting in front of Nicodemus communicating these things to him, and he is baffled. Baffled. We speak of what we know. The prophets of old have communicated, to this, communicated this, and yet Nicodemus is rejecting his testimony. Now this is, important. this is important. We'll get to the conclusion of this in a minute because there will be a moment where Nicodemus will no longer reject this testimony. Something will happen in Nicodemus' life that fundamentally changes everything about him. But nonetheless, in this moment, he's communicating to him all of these things, especially in regard to the new birth. And he's making the point here that these things have been communicated to you time and time and time and time again. And yet, there is something in you that rejects it. The thing that it, in Nicodemus that is rejecting everything that Jesus is saying is his own self-righteousness and a desire to have some glory in his salvation. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Jesus has already identified the thing that is hindering Nicodemus. Now, I would pause here for just a brief application. How often is it that our own pursuit of our glory, our own pursuit of our own self-righteousness would hinder us from coming to the cross empty-handed? Far too often we approach the, the atonement or far too often we approach really any of the things of God and we long to bring something of ourselves to the table. Friends, they aren't accepted there. The things that you would bring, should Nicodemus approach, uh, should, should approach the judge, that faithful high priest and judge on the day of glory and dread, bringing his own fruit, he would look at him in, in disgust. How dare you bring to me your labor? It's, it's pregnant with death. That's what it's produced. And the reason that Nicodemus rejects this is because at this moment he still loves his own righteousness. 
And so Jesus begins to communicate something even a little bit more lofty. So in verse 12, it says this, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So the first thing I want to communicate here, this, is that what we're about to discuss is what Jesus understands to be one of the most lofty topics to be discussed. We're going to discuss that which is actually able to save men. And it's not as though when we look at this and Jesus is saying, I've communicated to you earthly things and now I'm telling you heavenly things like the new birth is not heavenly. The issue is the atonement is something that should, should inspire the highest, highest degree of reverence as we approach it. And I will confess to you fear and trembling every single time we come to it. Because it is not something that we can mistake. It is not something that we can misrepresent. When we come to the cross of Christ, we should consider them to be the most lofty of topics and walk in with the deepest of reverence. And we should indeed feel the weight of it. Yes, as we consider the new birth, it's a lofty topic. But friends, when we look to the crucifixion of our high king, we should come with great reverence. And so Jesus comes and he's saying, I've communicated to you earthly things and I'm going to communicate to you heavenly things. So the question is, what is it that he communicates to him? So he looks at Nicodemus and he says this in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. I love this language. He crushes Nicodemus here. And honestly, he crushes any individual who thinks to themselves that they have some means by which to attain or to climb up the ladder, perhaps a ladder of righteousness, if you would, to heaven. It cannot be done. It will never be accomplished. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and without, without any, any one person making their way through. There's only one who actually would be able to ascend into heaven. So in verse, one, in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended. So the very first thing he does, he says, no one has achieved the necessary righteousness to enter into my heaven. Not a single soul. No one. No one. No one has a right to be here. It's essentially as though Jesus slams the door in Nicodemus' face and says, you can't get here. You can't get here. And so I want you to see this. Nicodemus and all others are excluded from entry. We are barred from entry. If Nicodemus had no means of entering into heaven, how would we gain entrance? Would we agree that perhaps his righteousness was better than our own? Nicodemus had spent his entire life trying to uphold the righteous requirements of the law, though, yes, he felt, I would have to argue to some degree, that he probably succeeded a little bit better than I did. Maybe I made a strong aim to to look good, to maybe dress up myself, even though I be dead in my trespasses and sins. It's almost as though putting makeup on a corpse, it's still dead. There's no means for me to enter in. So I'd like to read to you this quote because I think Calvin actually really sums this up really well. So it says this, Christ shuts us out of heaven. Now this is the beauty of it. But then quickly supplies a solution when he adds that 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 what was denied to everyone is granted to the Son of God. This is also why he called himself the son of man. We can now have no doubt that we have an entrance into heaven in common with Christ who clothed himself with our flesh. Listen to this, so that he might make us share in all his blessings. The beauty of this statement as yes, as Nicodemus hears the statement, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended. The beauty of this is, is there actually is one who is able to ascend into heaven. Who is that? In verse 13, it says the son of man. Now, this is where we get to that grand conclusion. How is it then that the way can be opened? Jesus just looks at Nicodemus and says, there's no way possible. And then he adds in, but there is a a clause here almost that allows us entrance. And it's a clause that says, you can't get in, but I will provide a way. 
I will provide a means of entry. And so how is the way opened? Look at verse 14. It says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So two things I'd like to point out here. The first and foremost, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Remember the sermon in a sentence. The sermon in a sentence is this, that anyone who looks to the Son of Man who is lifted up will have eternal life. What I mean by that is this, that if anyone looks to Christ, the one who has been raised up on the cross, that if we would look to him, place our faith in him, then we actually have salvation. The new birth has an object. Consider this for a moment. As this conversation is taking place, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that should you have a new birth, you will find the new birth that those, those spiritual eyes that God gives you in regeneration finds their, themselves fixed on the cross. The means by which the great affection of the saint, the one who has experienced the new birth, finds their eyes forever locked in on the cross of Christ. They can never waver. They will not wander away because the cross will be the most beautiful thing that they could fathom because that which was barred to them, eternity with the Father, eternal life is granted to them in Christ. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. But what exactly does this mean? Now, I would like to take a pause here and consider something. There are many times when we come to our scriptures, when we go through our daily Bible reading, we come to passages that perhaps seem a little bit vague. And more often than not, it's very likely that those vague passages are actually referring to something that happened in the past. Friends, to understand your New Testament, you must understand your Old. It's very important that we understand that should we aim to have a grasp of the New Testament doctrines of atonement, the New Testament understanding of regeneration, the new birth, very likely the Old Testament has communicated greatly those truths. In the exact same way, when we come this morning to look at this idea of the Son of Man being lifted up, Jesus himself gives an allusion to the past. He says, just as, the, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So for us to understand this, we must turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. I would encourage you to turn there. And as a secondary note, when it simply comes to in your own personal time studying the Word of God, friends, if you come across something that seems vague, more often than not, there is a footnote. That footnote will very likely lead you to a passage that will grant you great clarification on what you're studying in that moment. I would encourage you to take the extra time. And hopefully what we'll go through this morning will entice you to do just that. So in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, it says this. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I'm just going to pause here for a minute. I want you to, to hear the folly of this statement. All right, because I want you to hear what it sounds like when men complain to God about his provision. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Does anybody hear the, the, the ignorance in that statement? That is genuinely the ignorance of man bringing a charge against God. I'm really angry with you. I'm really angry about the breath that you have provided for my lungs today. I mean, it's just absolutely foolish. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I just think it's laughable. Anyway. Um, so it continues on in verse 6, and it says this, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, there's a couple things we need to see here. First and foremost, you can kind of see in the narrative that what happens is this. Um, the Israelites are beginning to be very, very frustrated with the fact that they're in the wilderness. They're sick and tired of the worthless food that God has provided for them, and they complain that there is no food at all. They are in rebellion against God, and because of their rebellion, there is a penalty for their perversion. There's always a penalty for sin. And as the Israelites complain both against God and against his prophet, uh, God becomes very frustrated with them and gives them the due penalty for their sin, which is death. We should never be quick to, we should, we should never be slow to remember that the wages of sin is death and that is an instantaneous judgment. It, any breath that you breathe is a gift and grace from the Lord, friends. And so in this particular circumstance, he begins to be fed up. He says, look, we're just going to go ahead and wipe them out. I'm going to send fiery serpents among them and anyone who is bitten by the fiery serpents will die. The penalty for sin is always death, every single time. Should anyone be spared of death, it is all of grace. And so what we find here this morning is the serpent in the wilderness does a couple of things. First and foremost, it is lifted up as evidence of penalty. It's very interesting, isn't it, that the remedy for, their, for the thing that is killing them is actually, should they look to it, is clear indication of what they had already done. It indicates their sin and the judgment that God gives for their sin. They look to the bronze serpent and they consider as they look there, look at, my sin did this. I approached Moses, I approached God and, and I approached God's prophet and I brought a charge against God. Look what, look what he did. He sent fiery serpents. It was the due penalty for my sin. And every time I look at this thing, I'm reminded of my own sin and my own guilt. I brought this about. It is a clear evidence. Now, I want you to consider for a minute that perhaps there may have been some in Israel who, because they refused to look, because they refused to consider that this was my penalty, I brought this about, perhaps they would never allow their eyes to gaze at that serpent that would give them life. You see, it is, it is very, very true, my friends, that when we consider the sin that brought about the need for Christ's coming to redeem us, I love what John Owen said, that the only thing we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. The beauty of the cross, the beauty of even this is, is, is it a confrontation. It is a calling out of that which demands some type of redemption. And every time an Israelite would look there, they would be reminded, my sin brought this about. Not only is it lifted up as evidence for penalty, it is also lifted up as a means of rescue. Should they look to the cross, they would actually be healed. Isn't that an incredible thing? Should they look to this bronze serpent, that thing that, that, brought about, that, that brought about ultimately their destruction, its venom is running through their veins, but should they look there, it is a means of restoration. It is a means of life. As they lay dying on their mats, being poisoned by the venom, their organs begin to shut down, and immediately they would look to that thing and be healed. What a grand means of rescue. It is interesting, God does not actually grant their request. The request is, Lord, take these fiery serpents from us. He doesn't grant their request. He says, look to, the, look to the serpent. Look to the ones that I provided. I provided a means of rescue. They, they're still there. But should you be bit, there is a means of redemption. There is a means of life. Thirdly, it is a rescue only for those who look. You have heard me say last week that the new birth is all of grace. It is God's free gift. And this serpent that God provided, this bronze serpent to be lifted up, was a means of rescue. But friends, there is a response necessary for man. If they did not look, they would die as snake-bit victims. They would die on their beds with a means of rescue, simply but a glare away. 
It's absolute foolishness. You would consider that if you were to walk around Israel in this day and you stumbled upon one who had been snake bit and perhaps he is a little bit further away from the bronze serpent that is lifted up, even though it be in the middle of the camp, that it may be a couple, of, a couple too many steps for them to get there. And they would say, oh, but I'm so tired, I'm so fatigued, I cannot make it. You would look at them and call them a fool. There's a means of rescue. Yes, it may, be, uh, it may be as though you're a dead man climbing there, but nonetheless, there is a means of redemption. There is a means of, of, of actual rescue and healing. And so not only is it an evidence of the penalty, not only is it a means of rescue, it is also one that is exclusive for those who would look. It is not as though it is raised up so that finally every single person would be healed. Instead, it is a means that anyone who would look would be saved. So listen to this. The serpent provided rescue from physical death only for a time. Here's the reality of it. The serpent that was raised up would heal those Israelites, but for, their, but for a brief moment. Soon, regardless whether it be three years, 30, or 300, they would still fall to a physical death. It was a small means of rescue. And the beauty of these Old Testament shadows and types, when Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The beauty of these things is the substance is always better than the shadow. You see, as the serpent was lifted up to provide rescue for physical death for only for a time, Christ is better. I'd like to point out to you real quickly as we gaze our, or as we focus our attention on the cross, first and foremost, the sun is lifted up as evidence of penalty. The sun is lifted up as evidence of the penalty. I have heard it said, and I remember actually being a 14-year-old and someone brought this charge against the scriptures that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. The God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and fury and the God of the New Testament is full of grace and mercy. Friends, the greatest evidence of the wrath of God is not found in the Old Testament. It's not found in the days of Noah. It's not found as God exercises judgment on Egypt. It's found at the cross of Christ. We are fools if we believe any different. For at the cross of Christ, God did not drink a temporary death. Instead, what you find is Christ drank the eternal amount of wrath, the eternal amount of God's wrath for the redemption of the sons of God, those who he would rescue, those who would believe. You see, the greatest moment of, of God's wrath being poured out is on the cross of Christ. And can you consider for just a moment, and it's important for us to note this, especially those of us who are saints, should we look to the cross, we are fools if we believe that it is not the greatest demonstration of the penalty of sin. It should create in us a great disdain and hatred for it. And for those of you who are not in Christ, my friends, should you look to the cross, I would encourage you to understand that your fate is far worse than being nailed to a tree. You see, as we consider the cross, as we consider him being lifted up far too often because of movies like The Passion of the Christ or even sermons that would elaborate on the physical torment of Christ, we miss the fact that he drank an eternal amount of God's wrath. For three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. Understand that what you see there is a slight demonstration should you look only to the physical of the torment that will actually be brought about in your life should you not and repent, your, repent and place your faith in Jesus. Because God is just, he will punish sin and there are two options available to you. You can look to Christ and you can say, that is the penalty of sin, he has paid it in full for me. Or you can be so arrogant and foolish to believe that you will somehow meet the requirement. And friends, the, the issue is, the option is open to you. You can make the attempt. You can make the attempt. You will fail. You will fail and you will spend eternity separated from the loving kindness of God under only his wrath and fury. The penalty is clearly evidenced in the Son of Man being lifted up. But the beauty is, he is lifted up as a means of rescue. 
You see, for the saint, as we look to the cross, yes, we see the heinousness of our sin. Yes, we see the wrath of God poured out. Yes, we see the weight and the wickedness of our sin. We see, as, uh, as, as Owen would say, the, the, the sinfulness of sin, the, the true depravity of it, the fact that it is worthy of actual condemnation from God. And the only reason that we would ever look to the cross and not see its penalty is because we don't actually believe that God is holy and is just in punishing sin, but friends, he is. And yet, for the saint, we look there and we say, it is our greatest hope. It is everything that we long for because there we see that yes, the penalty is paid in full. Yes, we can look there and observe absolutely how wicked our sin is. But yes, at the exact same time, we can see the grace and mercy of God as justice and grace meet in the cross of Christ. I'm reminded of an A.W. Pink quote that says, Did God stay the sword of justice? And the answer is no. He sheathed it in the side of the Savior. Friends, God is just. Your penalty will be paid. And for the saint, we can look there and we can say what beautiful rest and comfort we have that the penalty has been paid in Christ. It is our greatest means of rescue and redemption. And we finally have life and life to the full. Christ's crucifixion, him being lifted up just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, is a means of rescue and not a temporary one. Thirdly, rescue is only for those who believe. I want you to notice the language here. There's exclusivity in this. I need you to understand uh, the cross is exclusive, meaning that anyone who does not look to Christ and place him as the high, high authority in their life, bow to him as Lord, God, and King, there is no means of rescue for them. They will take option two where they long to bear their own trespass and believe that they might somehow either outweigh their guilt or they will find themselves suffering underneath the weight of God's wrath. And so in verse 14 it says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Notice the exclusivity. Whoever believes in him. Friends, the grand object of saving faith is Christ lifted up. If that is not the object of your faith, your faith is null and void, for faith is only as strong as its object. You can have faith in whatever you'd like to. You can have faith in your spouse. You can have faith in, in, in the government. But ultimately, you can have as much faith as you want to. The object is weak. The object is weak. But in the cross, that is not the case. Instead, even a little faith will do because the object is mighty. The object is actually able to save. And so as those Israelites would walk out and begin to gaze upon the bronze serpent and immediately feel the serpent's venom lose its effect in the exact same way, sweet friends, if you would look to Christ and believe in him, then you would watch as sin's punishment, as the penalty of your perversion would fade away because he paid it in full. And so what we have here is rescue only for those who believe. And I would encourage you and entice you, please, friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, there is no greater foolishness than to sit under the gospel and ignore its call to repent and believe. Second thing is it's a rescue for all who believe. I know that may seem like a double point. It's rescue for only for those who believe, but it's also rescue for all those who believe. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every people group, every socioeconomic background, there is no limit to the people that it is able to rescue. It is actually a rescue for all who believe. Isn't that a great hope this morning? 
You see, far too often I find myself placing, and, and, and this is my confession to you, I find myself placing, just considering this first, that it's only rescue for those who believe there's great exclusivity here. But what beauty is the incredible inclusivity of the cross. Should you look there, there's actually reconciliation. There's actually repentance. There's actually some means of restoration in true life. It is actually rescue for all who believe. And the reason this is so glorious is we can knock on any door and say, would you look to Jesus and be saved? You see, the first is not nullify the second. Yes, it is rescue only for those who believe, but it is also rescue for all those who believe. So we go to knock on every door in any conversation that we may have. We may offer them Christ fully, and should they believe, they actually will have rescue. They actually will be saved. The last thing I bring up just to clarify is this. The Son provides rescue from both physical death and spiritual death eternally. Notice verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John is the great revamper, so to say, or great communicator of biblical eschatology. The end times, what happens to the saint? And he is the one that communicates so faithfully eternal life. Friends, to be in Christ means that you share in the life that he has. That's why when we look back and you consider this, first, this verse in verse this. Uh, Phrase in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Friends, this remains true. The beauty is that though the doors be barred to you, they are not to Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is you are united with him. Should Christ ascend, we will ascend with him. Should he be given rewards and merit, he freely gives those to us. Friends, the beauty of the gospel is we're united with him. We find ourselves not just as heirs but co-heirs with Christ as Romans 8 would say. The, the, incredible, the incredible exchange that took place at the cross is he bore our guilt and sin so that we might bear his righteousness and be rewarded as he was. If Christ, the Son of Man, he who descended will ascend into heaven, friends, we can rest very comfortably, those of us who have been granted his righteousness, that we too, by his merits, will ascend and enjoy him forever. I love what... Spurgeon wrote in regard to this, he said, How great are my privileges in Christ. Without him I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In him I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without him I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him I gaze upon my father, God, and friend. Without him I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him all is wrath and consuming fire. In him is all love and the repose of my soul. Without him is a gaping hell below and eternal anguish. Listen to this. In him, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Barred to you. It is not a place where the saint can find himself because the cross, because Christ on the cross bore all that would condemn you there. They are barred. This is the beauty of the atonement. Not only do we look there and we say, yes, there is forgiveness of sin, but at the exact same time we look there and say, just as Christ ascended, because we are united with him in a death like his and a life that he has provided for us, then we too will have the glorious option should we place our faith in him to ascend with him and dwell with him eternally. And so, my friends, this morning I have two requests of you. First of all, if you be a saint, how easy is it to sing the praises of Christ? that he would bear our guilt, that he would bear our reproach, that we might draw near to him and be called sons or daughters of God, that we might be called a friend of God. It should become quite easy for us. But secondly, I am most certain, and I am not a fool, at least for the most part, that there be many in here who do not know Christ, 
Perhaps you've been introduced to him. Perhaps you've heard the gospel preached to you more times than one. And yet you constantly act as the Israelite who had been bitten by a serpent and said, I will not get up from my bed. I will lay here and die in my sin. Though that be an option for you, I encourage you, I beseech you, would you look to Jesus? If you look to Christ, there is actually rescue there. There is redemption for your sin. And not only is there redemption, the, 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 the gates of hell are barred to you. No longer is that an option for you because he has borne your guilt. There is nothing that would condemn you there. And far be it past that, we are actually in, entitled to the riches of heaven because he bought them for us. I love the, the acronym of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Friend, those are offered to you in Christ, but only, only in Christ. Nowhere else are they offered. You cannot work for them yourself. You will find yourself wanting and you will sit under the righteous judgment of God. So my encouragement to you this morning is that you would repent, that you would believe in Christ and find all of your hope and joy in him for he does not disappoint.